Welcome to Charla Cultural, a little chat about cultura from Asterix Journal and City of Asylum. I'm Carla Lamb. And I'm Adriana E. Ramirez. Today, we're digging into the unknown with Daniel Borzinski. Daniel Borzinski is the author of Written After a Massacre in the Year 2018, Lake Michigan, finalist for the 2019 Griffin International Poetry Prize, The Performance of Being Human, which received the 2016 National Book Award. He teaches in the English and Latin American and Latino Studies departments at the University of Illinois in Chicago. We'll start with a clip of Daniel Brzezinski's March 2021 performance at City of Asylum. Then we'll transition to an interview I just did with Brzezinski, some conversation from Adri and I. And finally, we'll get to what we're reading and some thoughts for the road. I think like so many people, I'm still processing um, what happened in Uvalde and still trying to make sense of it all. You know, it's been really tough. And, you know, as you know, I've got kids and oh, the husband and I have actually been talking about like what our options are in terms of schooling or in terms of thinking about how to raise our kids in a world where that doesn't feel so normal to them. Mm. But, you know, that's just a, a light opening thought. How are you? <laughs> well, I'm okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm still, I'm also processing, you know, um, the the violence that keeps plaguing our country. And I am deeply saddened. But I am somehow, you know, pulling myself up and finding joy in the little things and joy is resistance. No, I, yeah. I believe in that. I think that, you know, <laughs> I actually is laughing because the word joy, I think I overused it today. So mm. I ended up opening a tab on computer on my computer that was synonyms for joy. And mm. so <laughs> it's actually open on my screen, you know? And so I'm just thinking about that. Um, synonyms for joy um and how we have to find mm -hmm. it in moments like this you know like i have to be able to look at my children and find joy in the little things they do and not just look at them and see the potential of misery that can be unleashed on my heart you know like yeah you can't do that you have can't to do that see. to yourself yeah you can't because then you become afraid of the world yeah, that's and we don't want that so impossible too, you know, and yeah. I actually really appreciate that we're doing um, and that we're engaging with Daniel Borzitsky's work this week as, you know, somebody who is Jewish and who lives in Pittsburgh um, and who read um, his book as a part of judging a poetry prize last year. Uh, I had so many different little connections to it mm -hmm. that I really it's weird to say enjoyed about a book like this, you know, Yeah, that I found myself holding in my heart might be the best way of putting it. I first was exposed to Daniel Brzezinski's work at City of Asylum. He performed at the Jazz Poetry Festival, um, I believe in 2018, and then again in uh, 2021 as part of a different reading series. And once I read uh, Written After Massacre in the year 2018, I mean, it was one of those readings that, you know, like you buy the book after. So 
but I, I read it in one sitting. I also found many connections and um, just, I think more of a, on a craft level, I'm really excited about what he's exploring um, and what he's <clears throat> like using like language and repetition and even like grotesque images and even like absurdity. Daniel does that in his work. And I think that's just what excited me about it. So I'm super excited for our listeners to um, dive deep into the unknown. Written after a massacre in the year 2018, you're amended in the locker rooms of the stadiums they dump you in when your body refuses to die. You're amended in Chicago on a beach that refuses to die. You're amended in Cuba on a beach that refuses to die. You're amended in California on a beach that refuses to die. You're amended in Guatemala on a beach that refuses to die. You're amended in Chile on a beach that refuses to die. The corpses of the Americas die their solar-powered deaths every night you refuse to die. You are frozen in the blocks of ice or melted in the sand holes on the border. The morphine drips through your body, eases the pain in your liver. The life-giving nutrients are jammed into your nostrils. A bureaucrat writes a dream song about the gentleness of the drugs they make you take so the blood will flow sweetly through your body. The privatized vitamins are jammed into your mouth and your lips are numb from the needles that grow in the garden. This is the state where the dead are restored to their death. This is the shithole song of the anesthetic. This is the shithole song of the corpse that refuses its own body. A bureaucrat walks by holding a cage for a baby. Which department or agency does the cage belong to? What cage manufacturer has signed the most lucrative contract with the municipality? It is unclear if the baby becomes a corpse before or after it is put in the cage. And the scope of the universe before or after does not matter. Once it might have mattered, but in the blankest of times, the laws of the desert and the laws of the ice block are the same. The laws of the bomb and the laws of the armistice are the same. You walk through the darkness of the surgery room and search for the end of your body. You carry a bag of stones around your neck, and the stones are the state that raised you. You carry a corpse around your neck, and the corpse is the state that raised you. If we were at a poetry slam... I would be snapping my fingers right now. There are so many killer lines. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Here that make me just, you know, that my inner uh, wanted to come mm-hmm. out, you know, which mm-hmm. is, so for example, once it might have mattered, but in the blankest of times, the law of the desert and the laws of the ice block are the same. Mm. I'm like, oh shit. And then I'm like, oh, technically, an ice block is also a desert. And I'm like, ah, but it's like the hot desert and the cold desert, right? And then I'm like, oh, so like there's sort of an equals are opposites and opposites are equals thing happening. Uh, And it's, but I, I, you know, I find myself digging into multiple of his lines like that and sort of the idea of a beach that refuses to die and how fun that is because a beach is both composed of, you know, the bones of dead creatures, right? And sand, which, you know, effectively what sand is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is, it is dead, but it is also a living thing at the same yeah. time. 
right? With the, with the tides and the ocean and erosion. Um, and so the way that it is both dead and alive. And so the tension of that, you know, of on a beach that refuses to die. And so what is mm-hmm. a dead beach and what is a living one? Um, mm-hmm. And what does it mean to refuse to die, right? Right. Um, it's the tension that definitely drives the poem forward. And there's so much tension. And it's one of those poems. I've read this so many times already, but I keep discovering something new, a new meaning, a new trajectory, a new leap. The, the royal you in here, it, to me, is kind of like a survival, like you refuse to die. But then it, it's like an act of resistance, you know, and especially with the last line, like the state that raised you, if you kind of take the words kind of out of maybe the poetic a context, but I mean, we're using, he's using words like department, manufacturer, what is it, a bureaucrat? That's what I love about Brzezinski's work. Like he's using these words that aren't necessarily poetic or romantic at all, but just it's so impactful for me when I read them. Carla, I'm going to disagree with you. And I'm going to ah. say that those words are poetic. Bureaucrat. Oh, <laughs> what an amazing word. Uh, you know, coming from a bureau. Um, mm-hmm. No, I mean, I used to play a game called Civilization. And it used to have mm-hmm. like Leonard Nimoy quotes for when you discovered a technology. And mm-hmm. when you got to bureaucracy, you know, Leonard Nimoy's voice would come on and say, the bureaucracy is expanding to meet the needs of the expanding bureaucracy. Oh, geez. I guess um, like this, <laughs> if you read it like that, it is a little bit of a poetic line. Uh, no, but poetic doesn't have to mean beautiful, right? There is something, well, right. the harshness of that, that, you know, like bureaucrat, the crat of it all, the cratness of it all, if you will. Mm-hmm. No, um, you know, language and is... That- that way. Um, But I agree with what you're saying in that, you know, these are not the words we typically associate with a certain type of romantic poetry, and certainly not with, um, you know, a poetry that reads almost like a eulogy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, bureaucrats don't really make it into eulogies very often. Um, And yet, the state as something that depersonalizes you. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, and the state as something that is both um, person and entity uh, mm-hmm. is fascinating in Borzitsky's work, right? Mm-hmm. You carry a bag of stones around your neck and the stones are the state that raised you. You carry a corpse around your neck and the corpse is the state that raised you, right? And so there's a couple of implications, right? And you know, a bag of stones is to a corpse in a way, and both are functioning like an albatross uh, in the Coleridge sense. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's more so the function of the things that throttle you, right, are the things that your country and its systems have perpetuated upon you. Um, Absolutely, so, yes. Yeah, so that that neck pressure is certainly mm-hmm. there. Uh, and I right. feel like that tension uh, exists throughout the work. In the scope of the universe, before or after, does not matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's a good uh, that's a good quote to end on. Thank you so much, Carla, for hosting tonight, and thank you to City of Asylum for um, putting this together. I uh, wish 
we could be in person in City of Asylum, and hopefully we will be able to uh, gather there at some point soon. I am in Chicago right now, but I am from Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh is, um, of course, deeply connected to uh, my new book, which I'm reading from, written after a massacre in the year 2018, which was just published by Coffee House Press. And like Don Me, I'm going to begin with uh, translation. Um, she mentioned the work of Raul Surita from Chile, uh, and I'll start um, with a couple pieces of his work, uh, which are like uh, some of what Donmi and Pube read, documentary and nature. Um, Surita was born in 1950, uh, was arrested following the 1973 military coup, and ever since then really has been writing poetry that um, details the experience of watching one's country be destroyed as a result of dictatorship. Um, like uh, like Korea, like Iran, uh, broadly speaking, if we put them all together, Chile, uh, Korea, Iran, all share experiences of dictatorship, of, um, of torture, of exile, of uh, entanglements with um, failed U.S. foreign policies as well. Uh, in this particular section, I'll read two short pieces from a section called uh, Canto de los Hijos Solos, Song of the Solitary Children, which are uh, testimonies of um, family members of uh, folks who were killed by the dictatorship. I will just read a few of them. Do you remember the screeching breaks at dawn? I am Andre Robert Blanco, his nephew. My name was Enrique Robert Contreras and they used to call me Lolo. I was born in Concepcion on May 4th, 1953, two days after an earthquake that shook the city, like a sign of what would become my life. My friends say I was a little boy who was lovable, friendly, and always joking around. I lived in France for three years. My father, Enrique, who was a bit of a mad scientist, went to study there, and he left me and my brother and sister, Max and Isabel, in a boarding school. When we returned to Chile, I enrolled in the National Institute, and I became a militant with the MIR, which is an activist organization uh, and political party. Uh, Ana Maria, my girlfriend, would say that I was very handsome. I liked to drive around and show off in my Renault 4. I was very hip. On the weekends, my brother and I would go out with girls, and we'd invite them to the Marconi Theater. It was fun to see the arguments in the Café Copelia between the hippies and the other dudes. When I went to universities, university, those fun times ended because I practically lived in the Fidel Ernesto housing project where I worked, and, where, and there they knew me as Antonio. On the day of September 11, 1973, in the morning, my brother and I came down from our house in El Cañaveral to take my mother, nicknamed La Paita, to work. We dropped Max and went on to La Moneda. They arrested me along with the troop of the president's bodyguards in front of the Intendencia building. I was 20 years old. After that, my family dispersed into exile. He was Enrique Robert Contreras, and he was executed right after the military coup. I am André Robert Blanco, his youngest nephew, and I remember him. You too should remember them. Do you remember the blows at sunrise and the fierce clarity of the new day? I am Carlos Arriagada Muller, his nephew. 
Jorge was born in Santiago in the summer of 1947, the son of Rodolfo and Irma. His father had arrived in Chile in 1937 from Germany, fleeing Nazi persecution. The migrant family set up a repair shop on Morande Street, and near there, Rodolfo met Irma, who had come from Tucapel. They had two kids, my mother Sonia and Jorge. From a young age, he had a restless spirit and was disorganized. I remember him as tall, handsome, with long hair, scruffy pants, and sandals. He studied film in the campus that the University of Chile had in Viña del Mar. He joined the Mir, and he defended his ideas from the perspective of art. It never bothered him that he was branded as bourgeois because he rode everywhere and the wicked one, his cintroneta. He was adventurous, bohemian, and he enjoyed life. His political commitment was expressed through his work as a filmmaker. He was La Moneda, La Moneda, La Moneda's the presidential palace. Uh, he was La Moneda's official cameraman, and he worked on many films from that era, such as The Battle of Chile. His comrades say that he had an amazing eye and an unmatched sense of creativity. He loved to draw and make music. He was in a band called Los Darks. When they made the film A la Sombra del Sol, directed by his close friends Gayotzi and Perlman, he fell in love with Carmen Bueno, and he was her partner. They were working together. They were walking together to work at Chile Films when they were arrested by plainclothes policemen at the corner of Bilbao and Los Leones. Since that day, we haven't stopped looking for them. He is Jorge Muller Silver, arrested and disappeared since November 29, 1974. I am Carlos Arriagada Muller, his nephew, and I remember him. You too should remember him. And I'll switch uh, to reading a few pieces from the new collection uh, written after a massacre in the year 2018. Um, just to contextualize the book a bit, I will read from the book's endnote, and then I'll read a few of the poems from the body of the book. Endnote. We live in a country of massacre shaped by a history of white supremacist massacre of police and state massacre that rages on into the present. Perhaps we are always and have always been writing after a massacre. There are blows in life so powerful, writes Peruvian poet Cesar Vallejo, I don't know. Most of my writing life, I've been trying to write poetry that grapples with the various violences we witness, we live with, we absorb. I've been trying to name the violence clearly and resist its routinization and bureaucratization. I've been trying, as poet C.D. Wright says, quote, not to exonerate or aestheticize immeasurable levels of pain. I don't know. I write because I know that I don't know. On October 27, 2018, 11 people were killed and six wounded at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. I know the synagogue well. It is a short walk from the house I grew up in, from the house my family still lives in. When I was, when I was a child, we were members of the synagogue. I became a bar mitzvah there. As reported widely, it was the deadliest attack on Jews in the U.S., I have thought quite a bit about whether or not to mention the shootings in this book, and given the number of mass shootings and white supremacist killings, I don't want to give the impression that I think one attack is more significant than another. I agree with what Raul Zurita once told me in an interview, quote, the apocalypse is not when the world ends, it's when one single person is killed. The entire universe becomes deformed when one single person is tortured. 
Perhaps I think it would be dishonest to not admit that I, and perhaps less importantly, this book were definitively changed by the shooting. And perhaps I'm afraid of a communal forgetting. And I want to at least offer a few words to honor the memory of those who died in the shooting and all the love that survives. Another thing, before the white supremacist murderer killed, he posted on social media about Hyas, the Hebrew immigrant aid society. He wrote, Hyas likes to bring invaders in that kill our people. I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw your optics, I'm going in. He blamed Jews and Hyas for helping Central American migrants and refugees come to the United States. I didn't know this until after the shooting, but Hyas also helped South Americans in the 1970s, including my parents, when they were migrating to this country. In my mother's words, quote, when we came to New York, we needed a lawyer to help with our immigration papers. And since we didn't know anybody, we asked our friend to recommend one. He told us to go to Hyas because they would do all the work for us free of charge. We went to the Hyas office on the Lower East Side and they did all the paperwork for us. Within a year, we were able to get our green cards and initiate the process of becoming U.S. citizens. I'll stop there. Uh, so a portion of the book, um, each of the poems is titled Written After a Massacre in the Year 2018. And... Um, I wanted to finish the book at the end of 2018 as a way of exercising that um, year uh, in both the uh, um, mass shooting in Pittsburgh, the mass shooting of uh, Latino people in El Paso, uh, as a way of kind of exercising it from our um, history, uh, or at least um, hoping to um, push it aside. Uh, history, um, the next few years weren't quite better necessarily, but um, nevertheless, um, that was the sort of impetus in calling the book what I uh, did. I wanted to sort of have it be some sort of a document of 2018. So I'll read a few um, poems from the section written after a massacre in the year 2018, and then I'll move on to a few others. This begins with a quote from Coleridge, to see is only a language, uh, from his poem written during a temporary blindness in the year 1799. To see is only a language and I can't speak it today. They've wrapped a heavy blanket around my face. The cops deliver the influenza, but before injection, they need to wait for someone to fix the central heating. No one wants to interrogate me until they fix the central heating. I chatter with the broken refugees in this prison, our faces wrapped in darkness too. A list of frozen bodies, a lost list of unclaimed bodies, a lost list of privatized bodies, a lost list of bodies they seized. We are the lost list, but we don't know where they keep us. Three. The border bisecting the infected fumes of the infested factories, the utopia of statelessness, the utopia of transience. They tell us Lake Michigan is the Central America of the Midwest. They send us here so we can share hepatitis swabs with dirty immigrants. Hold on to your DNA, refugee citizens. The only question about life is what does it mean to live it for? Financiers selling bodies, speculators selling blood and sperm. They slink into the webs of the city. They tell me I don't have the right to grieve over my own body. They tell me to pray and to grieve is illegal. Five. What did he shout before he massacred the grandmothers? What did he shout before he massacred the worshippers? What did he shout before he massacred the nurses, the silent 
praying skeletons. He was on his way to the river the blood would never reach. He was on his way to the Nazi meetup the blood would never reach. The stock market just opened. The exchange value of a slaughtered Jew is like the exchange value of a slaughtered Jew. If your body is on fire, a private firefighter will put it out much faster than a state one. The death of a sensuous lung. Six. The song of the ram's horn by the river. The early Americans marched to meet the caravan in the desert. An authoritative body tells me I can't disembody my body without disembodying the collective body's body. And if I disembody the collective body's body, then I will have to disembody the imagined community's body. And if I disembody the imagined community's body, then I will need to ignore the fields of multiple destruction today. I dip my finger into a cup of blood and wish for plagues to destroy the empire. I need to destroy the nation state, but when will I find the time? Seven. The bourgeoisie pay taxes to kill immigrants, bathe in the cryptocurrency of a bank that will never exist. Eight. The song of atonement at the river sings, pray harder and the massacre will go away. Pray harder and the massacre will not turn into another massacre. Pray harder and the rich people will become poor people. Pray harder, harder and the slaughterer will turn into a butterfly. Play, pray harder and the 30 million white males with guns will turn into a river of testicles rolling down the street. When they repossess my body, my heart will soak in petroleum and my mouth will be a baby in a cage. The poetry of the shattered bone and the flame of the human document. Nine. The, cat the ca catastrophe is caressed ad nauseum. The greased up multitudes are not afraid to say the same thing over and over again. Death leaks from their shoes and the slaughtered Jews are like slaughtered Jews. I dream about returning to a prayer that doesn't exist. I disappeared yesterday when they assassinated the morning and turned our life into spectacle. 10. You hid behind the soldiers with machine guns running down the street. You were praying for plagues and wishing your parents would come out of the building alive. The worshippers of the dead trees knew where there is a first kill, there will be a second. Where there is a third kill, there will be a fourth, a fifth, a five hundredth. The anecdote destroys the analysis. 11. The emigrants split their bodies into communal assets. To assimilate, they must stand by the river with a prophylactic angel in their hands, disguised as a rocketing hedge fund. In the rupture, in the rubble, in the pathological eye sockets, in the counter-odyssey of the whites of your eyes, in the parliamentary assault rifle, the parliamentary machine gun splatter, the illegal bodies in cages are painted over by the analytics and mathematics of the hemisphere. How do you quantify the broken toddlers rolling on the ground? How do you quantify the murmuring grief of the Americas? 12. Marines medicate mothers and mix their milk with mononucleosis. Millionaires multiply in the machinery of mourning, manufacturing mausoleums for martyred Marxists and Mercedes. Middle managers mistake manipulative merchants for munificent moralists. A military massacre on the municipal motorway is like a military massacre on the municipal motorway. Metaphysical mayors mediate the mythology of mystical markets while monitoring the murders of migrants. My mouth is filled with worms. Dream song number 322. A technical error caused the bomb to fall from the airplane and onto the city. 
The military knew it was a bomb, but they told the reporters it was a UFO. The critic believed that because I avoided rhyme and meter, I was under the illusion my verbal constructs were self-generated by nature. A spokesman for the mayor apologized for not warning residents the army dropped training bombs in their neighborhood. I lightened the, burder, the burden of my imagination by casting out the past and all its anxieties. I thought my therapist was a redeemer, but really he was the antichrist. I wanted to be avant-garde, but I was too concerned with being liked by my audience. I tried to write a sonnet, but instead I wrote a seven-page letter to my grandmother. When I said goodbye to my grandmother for the last time, she wouldn't come out of the bathroom because of the germs. She hugged a bottle of bleach, gave me cab fare, and I never saw her again. The past is an endless crisis that reappears with each new state of crisis. When she poured bleach into the sink, I imagined dead fish in the river or birds falling out of the sky. The city hasn't replaced the corroded water pipes in 200 years. There are holes where once there was lead. No one drinks tap water. We only brush or bathe when we need to. She told me I needed courage, but what I really needed was a sandwich. She told me I needed grit, but what I, what I really needed was clean water. I remember the hotel room where I saw a man cry for the first time. He was talking on the phone to his best friend, my grandfather. They hadn't spoken in years. The curtains were the color of red wine, the bedspread the color of sand. My grandfather's best friend was traded to another country for petroleum and a plea bargain he never, never agreed to. I tried to seize hold of the memory at the moment of danger, but I missed. The prisoners in the glaciers were filmed and forced to smile. They sang, the block of ice will always be ours. I'll read uh, two more pieces. The crisis. The smuggled bodies float into the crisis of a dying continent where the dead children are reproduced like pages off a printing press. The pages blow away and so does the crisis. The analysts believe the crisis must always be inside another crisis. They move the crisis from one network to another, from one currency to another, from one language to another, from one body to another, from one device to another, from one disease to another, from one nation to another. The crisis has appropriated the authority of the state and the bank. It is not the crisis you think it is. It is the crisis of crises. It is all the crises, and it is just the right amount. An authoritative body says we must reproduce human death in order to sustain the crisis. But this does not prevent us from loving your crisis, from recognizing that your crisis has stories and dreams like the rest of us. Once upon a time, there was a network that moved the crisis of progress from an old death camp to a new one. But when the crisis got to the new camp, the gas chambers were empty. The earth had devoured all the corpses. The crisis was in danger. Animals and languages went extinct. The people kept being born and dying as the futures continued to advance. This is the last piece in the book, and I will conclude with this. The murmuring grief of the Americas. You are on the ground, wrapped in a ratty blanket at the edge of the cage. The interpreter wedges her way into the corner. She sits on her knees, brings her head to your mouth so she can hear the whispers that barely come. I don't know where I am. I don't know who my parents paid for me to get here. She slides her hat off so the cameras can see you more clearly. 
You refuse to open your eyes as what you have been instructed to do, but the director is unhappy with the blocking, the angles, the shadows. Yes, the interpreter to tell you to look into the camera as the hat is removed from your head. The assistants give your wrapped up body a few rolls. They twist you into the proper position, at which point a doctor asks you to open your mouth to say, ah, while you look into the camera. This moment here with your mouth open and the doctor looking into it is where the scene is supposed to turn. Something transcendent is supposed to happen, but the director can't figure out how to realize his vision. He yells cut then confers with his colleagues about what should flow out of your mouth. Their opinions differ. One suggests a butterfly, another suggests a snake, another a stream of the most beautiful words spoken first in a foreign language, then translated by a child with a sweet voice, an adorable accent that perfectly articulates how your body and mouth convert the murmuring grief of the Americas into a currency of empathy, accumulation, and massacre. The crew meets for several more minutes to discuss what should come out of your mouth after the doctor asks you to say ah, but the director pauses as soon as the cameras start to roll. He is unhappy about something. There should not be a sunset in the background. There should not be flowers in the foreground. The world will be dark until he dows his body with light. Thank you so much for being here and for listening. You know, the refrain, like the, the love that survives. And I've been mulling that over in my brain um, last couple of days. And for you, post writing this and post 2018 and like the massacres that we continuously survive and continuously write about, um, what has been the love that has survived for you? On the one hand, maybe and maybe most poignantly is the the memories of the people who have mm. survived or the legacies of the people who have sorry not even not survived survived as well as died, um, but the legacies of of those who have have been massacred or been killed survive. Of course, there are the people who are most directly affected by that who are um, you know loved ones, family members, friends of those same people but then there's all of us right and 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 then there is ways in which we have to figure out how to i mean on the one hand something like the shooting in pittsburgh i felt very personally connected to in lots of ways right but of course there are plenty of other shootings that i don't have a personal connection there um we all have to figure out how to live with that how to assimilate it into our lives, how to not be, on the one hand, paralyzed by it, which is a totally reasonable response in lots of ways. Um, And on the other hand, how to continue living in such a way that you are able to have some sense of optimism. And so I think on the one hand, there's all those kind of ideas that I just mentioned. On the other hand, I feel like the love that survives can often be art, right? Or um, can often be the reason we write. Maybe that's the way to say it most poignantly, right? We write in order to perhaps make sense of this and to perhaps try to figure out what meaning it might have in our own lives. I think that's how I would start to answer that really complicated question. Um, Moving away from uh, written after massacre in the year 2018, I kind of wanted to shift a little bit to like a more general personal 
approach to writing. So being an immigrant myself and being of like dual dual cultures and bilingual and all of and like the dual identity did you grow up with a sense of like the duality of like being bicultural bilingual yeah no um definitely definitely a sense of duality um in, I mean, Pittsburgh still doesn't have a very big Latin American immigrant population, but um, it's certainly bigger now than it was when my parents uh, moved in the 70s. So on the one hand, my um, home life um, was extremely different than the home life of my friends. And I was very much aware of the fact that I was um, in mm-hmm. uh, um, growing up in a multilingual, um, multi-different um, kind of home home than um, that of my peers. And I think that you know, my parents had some Latin American friends in Pittsburgh in a small Latin American mm-hmm. community, but they were not like particularly nostalgic um, yeah. about Chile. Um, and they did not have a kind of like idealized vision of a place that they left and loved so much. I'm sure it was very difficult for them to leave. And I'm sure that um, they missed lots of things about it. But it was not, I was not given this kind of, uh, I don't know, idealized uh, vision of a, a land that they left. Um, right. On the one hand, on the other hand, they just the fact of their lives was that they spoke Spanish to each other. And the fact of our mm-hmm. lives was that our families, our extended family was in Chile. Those were like um, realities, but I don't think it would have ever sort of occurred to them to um, kind of use language like you should be proud of the fact that you are mm-hmm. from, you know, there, um, that that wasn't the, the um, kind of discourses of, um, I don't know, national pride weren't part of my upbringing in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. And as I grew older, I, you know, I think I began to, um, want to have more of a mm-hmm. connection with Chile. And thus, I actually began to kind of translate writers from Chile mm-hmm. right around the same time that I was kind of beginning to seriously write. So I think I was sort of searching for that way of having some kind of reason to go there outside of my family, some kind of way of um, being in the language and being in the the, the history and the time of it too. Um, and kind of beginning to think about the ways in which uh, Chile and the United States were intertwined. So I think Mm -hmm. all of those things were happening more or less at the same time as I was kind of, you know, beginning, beginning to write. I want to connect that to this sense of uncertainty, the the, the unknowing that I don't know that is very present in the book. Um, Yes. Yeah. I mean, look, I think, on the one hand, they're um, again sort of grappling with how to write about uh, mm-hmm. about the aftermath of um, such intense violence. Um, the the not knowing is, is is about so many different things, right? right? It's about not knowing not knowing what I'm going to feel about this writing in a couple of years. Not knowing mm-hmm. what it means to have lived with this violence even more directly, mm-hmm. not knowing mm-hmm. what is an adequate form of language. Right? Mm-hmm. I yeah. think that that's the, the, the most important part mm-hmm. of it, right? Is it's like 
there's a kind of professionalization that um, writers are supposed to sort of have like sharp and witty and poignant answers um, mm-hmm. when they are asked difficult questions. And in this case, the answer is one does their best to try to write about uh, something that has so intensely affected you. Um, is it enough? Of course not. Um, is right. it adequate? Of course not. Um, right. And do I even come close to um, putting into language what I'm feeling. Right. Um, again, maybe, of course not, right? Um, and so those are all of the, the um, I don't knows, but it's also, it's like, I don't know how I'm going to continue to exist. You know, I don't know how I'm going to like, um, how we are going to uh, continue. I don't know what comes next. And that I think it's just important to kind of resist the the poignant answer. The writing is the not knowing. The writing is Mm -hmm. the reason to, uh, the not knowing is the reason to write circling back to the performance that you gave um, via Zoom on, um, with City of Asylum, you you said that this book, uh, Written After Massacre, is the hardest for you to to read of your own work. Is that still true after some couple years, after some distance? And maybe um, does it just get, does it get a little easier? Does it get harder? I, I, I think, what I, did, did I say that about the book or did I say that about yeah. the final piece? There are pieces that are still very hard to read. Mm-hmm. There is, um, I think, I, I don't always know how to frame this book when I'm talking about it. Um, mm-hmm. When I'm sort of casually giving... In in certain audiences, in certain like um, poetry venues, um, it doesn't feel um, necessarily like the thing that people um, want to sit through. Um, Mm. And, um, you know, whatever, Um, you you read what you read. But there is a sort of questions of like um, how much to talk about, how much to frame frame um, the book around um, around the shooting in Pittsburgh, um, mm-hmm. which frames really the last section of the book, I suppose. Um, I don't know. I, I was recently invited to give a reading, um, and it was a, like a reading where um, where people wanted me to read from this book, um, but it was like a kind of loud venue, and I felt like there was like lots of other things going on, and there was kind yeah. of music in the background, and I like just felt like like reading the poems and getting off the stage, um. Um, and. Um, <laughs> And that's fine, but it, it mm-hmm. but it also speaks to like a kind of slowness that maybe needs to happen sometimes to um, mm-hmm. to talk about this. That, yeah, that you know, like um, all venues give you that opportunity. Yeah, well, maybe there's a, a silver lining in like a Zoom platform where you know there's not that background noise. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, I hope more and more people read it and um, are moved by it as much as I was, yeah, we really appreciate you coming on to the podcast and lending your time to continuing the very important work. It's again, it is one of the things that survives. It's, and it's a huge love, you know, I think for, for me personally, um, I was recently interviewed for um, a podcast and the host threw me off and they said like, oh, you really love poetry, huh? And I was like, oh, I, yeah, I guess so. I mean, don't you? Don't we? Isn't that why we're here? Um, mm. So, again, thank you for that love and for that work. Thank you so much. <laughs> Have a good That's day. Great, great talking to you. Bye. 
appreciated that the reading began with the translation of the work of Raul Surida. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think it really puts his work into conversation uh, with Chilean poets. Mm, and yeah. I thought there was a really interesting tension, um, you know, between the fact that he doesn't feel like he grew up with a very cohesive connection to Chile. Um, but at the same time, he's now translating a Chilean poet. And so in some ways, like, is that a reclamation of homeland? Um, mm, yeah. And do we do we need to reclaim our homelands in the first place? You know, uh, mm. and I, you know, I say this because I have zero need to reclaim anything. I feel very comfortable in my Mexican and Colombian identities, but I also know that my children might not feel the same connection that I do. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, raising my children in this country what will the homeland mean to them? Mm, you know, and yeah. is, it, is it like, you know, the far off land of my ancestors? Um, or is it as tangible and as a part of who they are as it is for me? I, I don't know. Right. And there's a lot of, you know, like reclaiming and awakening and like honoring ancestry as of late that I've noticed some people, but in a, on a personal level, you know, since I grew up formative years outside of Mexico, I've had this like nostalgia for it. And every time I've gone back, it's um, a reclaiming and a re, um, I don't know, like a, uh, re-immersion into like my culture and my first language and you know everything that I longed for because I was in the U.S. This is why I love you because you're such a, <laughs> you're such a romantic you have this yeah. romantic idea of the motherland you know mm -hmm. and it's like an abuela's hug you know it's yeah. all it's all culture and food and mm -hmm. damn it if we hadn't been so poor I'd be back there now you know right um whereas I think Maybe, you know, that lines up with the Mexico of my father's childhood, but my mom mm -hmm. being Colombian, I think, you know, in some ways I understand Borzutsky's relationship to Chile because Colombia is such a violent place. Mm -hmm. And so you're not always sure if you want to be defined by a homeland that is so violent. Now, I obviously have leaned into that. Um, but Yeah, and but like, I've been leaning. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a process, too, because when I got past that nostalgic era um, and I got more curious about the history of my country, you know, where I was born, I started to realize how deep corruption and violence and um you know actual like racism and sexism is like deeply seated in the fabric of what I call home um and a country that I'm proud of and like proud to be from and have this um that's how I feel about being American and well right and then like I also claim I'm an American identity because of I mean I've grown up here for the last 25 plus years um and of course, like this country is riddled with violence and corruption. Um, so how do we, you know, as artists, as poets and as people, you know, the community, how do I feel like we're we're 
obviously on our own individual journeys of like navigating through all of that. But as a collective, um, I don't know, I turned to poetry, I turned to art. Um, like we were talking earlier, we were turning to like the small joys that we find. I think anyone who is writing about something that is not popular to write about. Mm -hmm. Right. And I don't mean that it's unpopular. I mean that it just isn't in people's imaginations Mm -hmm. and uh, being assigned a certain amount of responsibility. Right. Um, If you become like the author writing about Colombian violence, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a danger there. Not only does it put the onus of representation on that one writer, um, it also in many ways has the potential of getting the whole thing wrong if that writer gets it wrong. Right. And so you, you know, as somebody who writes about a topic that not very many writers engage with, I understand the weight that that can impart and the difficulty of wanting to be the voice of massacre poetry, right? Like nobody wants to be that. Um, Mm -hmm. And yet we understand the need for poetry to help us unpack such tragedies. And so I, you know, I think that Borzetsky is in a very interesting like Venn diagram of identities, right? And mm-hmm. one that I share, but to a different degree, you know, but he's Latino, he's American, he's Jewish, um, you know, and he's in this intersection um, that, you know, depending on which way he's facing um, has a complicated history with violence and with massacre and so yeah he probably has a lot to say um as you know is obviously evidenced in the work um but also nobody wants to become the only person saying it because of the aforementioned risks yeah you know sorry i said that so slowly i was kind of working through the thought um um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know There's a danger to finding too much beauty in the unmentionable. There is a danger in making something so horrific, something such an object um, that people then go and examine for its beauty or for its Mm -hmm. craft, because then you as a poet are in it you know, kind of making something horrific palatable. And this is something I think about all the time, you know, because this is something I do. Um, And so um, part of me wishes that we've been able to dig into that a little bit. I also want to know who Borzetsky roots for in the World Cup. Does he root for Chile? Does he root for the U.S.? Um, I firmly root for Mexico. So you see, Right. We are all family traders. (laughs) Well, I root for Mexico just automatically. Um, But from what you said to like, not like romanticizing violence or not fetishizing. And it's interesting because Brzezinski has in the book, there's something, the end note where he says, you know, perhaps we're always and always have been writing after a massacre, which is very Uh true. Yep. And then he says, I have been trying, SED Wright says, not to exonerate or aestheticize immeasurable levels of pain. And then I write because I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, you know, and that to me, like I have, it's rare that I encounter a work that has like this disclaimer at the end, but I really appreciated this particular endnote because it definitely, well, it helped contextualize the work first of all for me and then second of all 
again, it was an opening, another permission, because it's like, yeah, right into the unknown. Part of the writing process is research. Um, And I was told a long time ago, because of like not growing up in Mexico, there was a lot of unknown for me and not knowing who, like certain family, a lot of unknowns. And like my mom, grandma, like nobody was going to tell me. So I had to dive deep into the unknown, which is something that I, that's why Brzezinski's work, I just really resonated with me personally. I've been trying to name the violence clearly and resist its routinization and bureaucratization. And to me, that speaks in a way to kind of fighting it, right? Yeah. But also, you don't want to make this type of pain beautiful, right? And then you're interrogating the unknown. But then he goes into what he does know, mm-hmm. right? Which is the synagogue, which is the people he knew from there, which is that he was a bar mitzvah there. That move to say, you know, here's the big that I don't know. But here mm-hmm. is the small that I do know, mm-hmm. right? You know, whenever something happens, people like to talk about where they were, right? 9-11. Yeah. Um, you know, in our case, you and I earlier were talking about where we were on the day of this massacre in Pittsburgh. This is a way of adding that information without making it completely about himself. Yeah. You know, because a bar mitzvah is such an important thing. And to have a site where that happened become desecrated. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes beyond just oh, I was watching it on TV or I heard it on the radio, right? It, it becomes something that is about uh, a lifetime of experience with the place, the deeply, right. the deeply known. Um, yeah. And so I, I like that turn so much. Um, so I'm really glad that you highlighted that part of the epilogue because I, I do mm-hmm. think, or end note, sorry. I am really glad that you highlighted that part of the end note because I do think it is, crucial to giving the work context, but I think more so than that, um, it like interrogates the author's connection to massacre in a way that Mm -hmm. allows you to really feel what's at stake for him. Yeah. That personal connection. Yeah. It's everything. And it's what allows empathy to happen, you know, without testimonials, without stories of personal connection, it's so hard for us to even wrap our minds around the horrific. It's like the fact that one of my friends from high school um, knows one of the kids who died in Uvalde, Mm -hmm. right? And that it's a real person that I have a second degree connection to and that makes them tangible, that makes them not just a face, an unknown face on a screen. It makes them known. It makes them real. That's everything to imagining empathy and to imagining change, I would say. Yeah. All right. On that note, on that note. Oh, see, it gets real. I was going to say, I was going to say. Real sad, real Maybe imagining the love that survives. Yeah. No, I mean, the love that survives, but oh, the love that survives still has to survive, right? Yeah. It's hard. I mean, let's, let's, yeah, let's, uh, let's start with the love that's just there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For me, that is my love of reading. So, um, Carl, what are you reading? Uh, well, um, I picked up last time I was in Pittsburgh, I picked up a book at a comic book shop actually in Polish Hill, but I picked up Night Sky with Exit Wounds by Ocean Vaughn. Uh, I know it's an old book. It's been out for a while. I just haven't read it, but that's what I'm diving into currently. And I'm also reading The Pisces um, by Melissa Broder, which is a novel. It's a 
you know, blend of like realism with fantasy and eroticism too. So according to the reviews, it's going to be really good. And I'm going to take it on a little vacation with me. So I'm excited to dive into that for the road. Oh, that's awesome. I am reading An Apparent Horizon and Other Stories um, by Ricardo Wilson. It's an interesting read, and it really considers a lot of the intersection between Latino identity, Black identity, and American identity mm. through short stories. Um, yeah, I don't even know how to describe it, honestly. Um, it's out from Pank. Uh, I think it came out last year, and I, I got to see him read um, at an amazing read reading with um, Disha Filioff from Secret Life yeah. of the Church Ladies. And I, I, you know, I went to support Disha and I was, you know, that's always how it goes, right? You go to see one writer and then you end up falling in love with the other. Ooh. Um, well, falling in love is complicated. Let's, let's, <laughs> you end up going to see one writer and then you end up sort of developing an interest in the other writer that's there too. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I love really, when that happens. Yeah. And a collection of short stories is usually like, you know, when it's something about when it is about something this dark, I'm usually not as entertained. And yet I, I managed to be incredibly entertained throughout the entire collection. So yeah, check it out. An Apparent Horizon and Other Stories by Ricardo Wilson. Um, and on that note, uh, Carla, I hope the world gets better. Let's just, yeah. let's just try to find the love that's here and the love that survives and love that will come. Oh, I love that. Yeah. The love that will come stay hopeful, optimistic. I know it's hard, you know, I've been struggling lately, but it's hard, you know, and we, we try, we survive, we, we keep going. So until next time, we Thank love you. you. <laughs> Bye. Always great. Asterix is a transnational feminist literary arts journal co-founded by Angie Cruz and Adriana E. Ramirez, committed to social justice and translation, placing women of color at the center of the conversation. City of Asylum builds a just community by protecting and celebrating creative free expression. Charla Cultural is hosted by Adriana E. Ramirez and Carla Lamb. Voice of Goddess and Master of the Archive is Alexis Jabour. Angie Cruz is our advisor and spiritual guide. Transcript support is provided by Clarissa A. Leon. Jesse Welch serves as our production and editorial assistant. Our production design and brand management is done by Little Owl Creative. And as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Asterix Journal and City of Asylum.